Section 47 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Guero. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 3, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 25, Part 2. 7. Equally monstrous is the error of those who imagine that the soul, instead of resuming the body with which it is now clothed, will obtain a new and different body. Nothing can be more futile than the reason given by the Manichees, Vitalesset, that it were incongruous for impure flesh to rise again, as if there were no impurity in the soul, and yet this does not exclude it from the hope of heavenly life. It is just as if they were to say that what is infected by the taint of sin cannot be divinely purified, for I now say nothing to the delirious dream that flesh is naturally impure as having been created by the devil. I only maintain that nothing in us at present which is unworthy of heaven is any obstacle to the resurrection. But first, Paul enjoins believers to purify themselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, Second Corinthians 7, verse 1, the judgment which is to follow, that every one shall receive the things done in his body, according to that he has done, whether it be good or bad. Second Corinthians 5, verse 10. With this accords what he says to the Corinthians, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Second Corinthians 4, verse 10. For which reason he elsewhere says, I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. He says body as well as spirit and soul, and no wonder, for it were most absurd that bodies which God had dedicated to himself as temples should fall into corruption without hope of resurrection. What, are they not also the members of Christ? Does he not pray that God would sanctify every part of them, and enjoin them to celebrate his name with their tongues, lift up pure hands, and offer sacrifices? That part of man, therefore, which the heavenly judge so highly honors, what madness is it for any mortal man to reduce to dust without hope of revival? In like manner, when Paul exhorts, Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, he certainly does not allow that that which he claims for God as sacred is to be adjudged to eternal corruption. Nor indeed on any subject does Scripture furnish clearer explanation than on the resurrection of our flesh. This corruptible, says Paul, must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53 if God formed new bodies, where would be this change of quality? If it were said that we must be renewed, the ambiguity of the expression might, perhaps, afford room for cavil. But here, pointing with the finger to the bodies with which we are clothed, and promising that they shall be incorruptible, he very plainly affirms that no new bodies are to be fabricated. Nay, as Tertullian says, he could not have spoken more expressly if he had held his skin in his hands. 
nor can any cavil enable them to evade the force of another passage in which saying that christ will be the judge of the world he quotes from isaiah as i live saith the lord every knee shall bow to me romans fourteen verse eleven isaiah forty five verse twenty three since he openly declares that those whom he was addressing will have to give an account of their lives this could not be true if new bodies were to be assisted to the tribunal moreover there is no ambiguity in the words of daniel many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt daniel twelve verse two since he does not bring new matter from the four elements to compose men but calls forth the dead from their graves and the reason which dictates this is plain for if death which originated in the fall of man is adventitious the renewal produced by christ must be in the same body which began to be mortal and certainly since the athenians mocked paul for asserting the resurrection acts seventeen verse thirty two we may infer what his preaching was their derision is of no small force to confirm our faith the saying of our saviour also is worthy of observation fear not them which kill the body but are not able to kill the soul but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell matthew ten verse twenty eight here there would be no ground for fear were not the body which we now have liable to punishment nor is another saying of our saviour less obscure the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation john five verses twenty eight and twenty nine shall we say that the soul rests in the grave that it may there hear the voice of christ and not rather that the body shall at his command resume the vigour which it had lost moreover if we are to receive new bodies where will be the conformity of the head and the members christ rose again was it by forming for himself a new body nay he had foretold destroy this temple and in three days i will raise it up john two verse nineteen the mortal body which he had formerly carried he again received for it would not have availed us much if a new body had been substituted and that which had been offered an expiatory sacrifice been destroyed we must therefore attend to that connection which the apostle celebrates that we rise because christ rose first corinthians fifteen verse twelve nothing being less probable than that the flesh in which we bear about the dying of christ shall have no share in the resurrection of christ this was even manifested by a striking example when at the resurrection of christ many bodies of the saints came forth from their graves for it cannot be denied that this was a prelude or rather earnest of the final resurrection for which we hope such as already existed in enoch and elijah whom tertullian calls candidates for resurrection because exempted from corruption both in body and soul they were received into the custody of god eight 
I am ashamed to waste so many words on so clear a matter, but my readers will kindly submit to the annoyance, in order that perverse and presumptuous minds may not be able to avail themselves of any flaw to deceive the simple. The volatile spirits with whom I now dispute adduce the fiction of their own brain, that in the resurrection there will be a creation of new bodies. Their only reason for thinking so is, that it seems to them incredible that a dead body, long wasted by corruption, should return to its former state. Therefore, mere unbelief is the parent of their opinion. The Spirit of God, on the contrary, uniformly exhorts us, in Scripture, to hope for the resurrection of our flesh. For this reason, baptism is, according to Paul, a seal of our future resurrection, and in like manner the Holy Supper invites us confidently to expect it, when with our mouths we receive the symbols of spiritual grace. And certainly the whole exhortation of Paul, Yield ye your members as instruments of righteousness unto God, Romans 6, verse 13, would be frigid, did he not add, as he does in another passage, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies, Romans 8, verse 11. For what would it avail to apply feet, hands, eyes, and tongues to the service of God, did not these afterwards participate in the benefit and reward? This Paul expressly confirms when he says, The body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God has both raised up the Lord, and will also raise up us by his own power. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 13 and 14. The words which follow are still clearer. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 and 19. Meanwhile, we see how he connects the resurrection with chastity and holiness, as he shortly after includes our bodies in the purchase of redemption. It would be inconsistent with reason that the body in which Paul bore the marks of his Saviour, and in which he magnificently extolled him, Galatians 6, verse 17, should lose the reward of the crown. Hence he glories thus, Our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body? Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21. As it is true that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God, Acts 14, verse 22, so it were unreasonable that this entrance should be denied to the bodies which God exercises under the banner of the cross and adorns with the palm of victory. Accordingly, the saints never entertained any doubt that they would one day be the companions of Christ, who transfers to his own person all the afflictions by which we are tried, that he may show their quickening power. Nay, under the law, God trained the holy patriarch in this belief, by means of an external ceremony. For to what end was the rite of burial, as we have already seen, unless to teach that new life was prepared for the bodies thus deposited? Hence also the spices and other symbols of immortality, by which under the law 
the obscurity of the doctrine was illustrated in the same way as by sacrifices that custom was not the offspring of superstition since we see that the spirit is not less careful in narrating burials than in stating the principal mysteries of the faith christ commends these last offices as of no trivial importance matthew sixteen verse ten and that certainly for no other reason than just that they raise our eyes from the view of the tombs which corrupts and destroys all things to the prospect of renovation besides that careful observance of the ceremony for which the patriarchs are praised sufficiently proves that they found in it a special and valuable help to their faith nor would abraham have been so anxious about the burial of his wife genesis twenty three verses four and nineteen had not the religious views and something superior to any worldly advantage been present to his mind in other words by adorning her dead body with the insignia of the resurrection he confirmed his own faith and that of his family a clearer proof of this appears in the example of jacob who to testify to his posterity that even death did not destroy the hope of the promised land orders his bones to be carried thither had he been to be clothed with a new body would it not have been ridiculous in him to give commands concerning a dust which was to be reduced to nothing wherefore if scripture has any authority with us we cannot desire a clearer or stronger proof of any doctrine even tyros understand this to be the meaning of the words resurrection and raising up a thing which is created for the first time cannot be said to rise again nor could our saviour have said this is the father's will which has sent me that of all which he has given me i should lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day john six verse thirty nine the same is implied in the word sleeping which is applicable only to the body hence too the name of cemetery applied to burying grounds it remains to make a passing remark on the mode of resurrection i speak thus because paul by styling it a mystery exhorts us to soberness in order that he may curb a licentious indulgence in free and subtle speculation first we must hold as has already been observed that the body in which we shall rise will be the same as at present in respect of substance but that the quality will be different just as the body of christ which was raised up was the same as that which had been offered in sacrifice and yet excelled in other qualities as if it had been altogether different this paul declares by familiar examples first corinthians fifteen verse thirty nine for as the flesh of man and of beasts is the same in substance but not in quality as all the stars are made of the same matter but have different degrees of brightness so he shows that though we shall retain the substance of the body there will be a change by which its condition will become much more excellent the corruptible body therefore in order that we may be raised will not perish or vanish away but divested of corruption will be clothed with incorruption since god has all the elements at his disposal no difficulty can prevent him from commanding the earth the fire and the water to give up what they seem to have destroyed this also though not without figure isaiah testifies 
Behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood, and shall no more cover her slain. Isaiah 26, verse 21. But a distinction must be made between those who died long ago, and those who on that day shall be found alive. For as Paul declares, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. That is, it will not be necessary that a period should elapse between death and the beginning of the second life, for in a moment of time, in the twinkling of an eye, the trumpet shall sound, raising up the dead incorruptible, and, by a sudden change, fitting those who are alive for the same glory. So in another passage he comforts believers who were to undergo death, telling them that those who are then alive shall not take precedence of the dead, because those who have fallen asleep in Christ shall rise first. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15. Should any one urge the Apostle's declaration, It is appointed unto all men once to die, Hebrews 9, verse 27, the solution is easy, that when the natural state is changed, there is an appearance of death, which is fitly so denominated, and therefore there is no inconsistency in the two things, videlicet, that all, when divested of their mortal body, shall be renewed by death, and yet that where the change is sudden, there will be no necessary separation between the soul and the body. 9. But a more difficult question here arises. How can the resurrection, which is a special benefit of Christ, be common to the ungodly, who are lying under the curse of God? We know that in Adam all died. Christ has come to be the resurrection and the life. John 11, verse 25. Is it to revive the whole human race indiscriminately? But what more incongruous than that the ungodly, in their obstinate blindness, should obtain what the pious worshippers of God receive by faith only? It is certain, therefore, that there will be one resurrection to judgment, and another to life, and that Christ will come to separate the kids from the goats. Matthew 25, verse 32. I observe that this ought not to seem very strange, seeing something resembling it occurs every day. We know that in Adam we were deprived of the inheritance of the whole world, and that the same reason which excludes us from eating of the tree of life excludes us also from common food. How comes it, then, that God not only makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, but that in regard to the uses of the present life, his inestimable liberality is constantly flowing forth in rich abundance. Hence we certainly perceive that things which are proper to Christ and his members abound to the wicked also, not that their possession is legitimate, but that they may thus be rendered more inexcusable. Thus the wicked often experience the beneficence of God, not in ordinary measures, but such as sometimes throw all the blessings of the godly into the shade, though they eventually lead to greater damnation. Should it be objected that the resurrection is not properly compared to fading and earthly blessings, I again answer that when the devils were first alienated from God, the fountain of life they deserved to be utterly destroyed. Yet, 
by the admirable counsel of God an intermediate state was prepared, where without life they might live in death. It ought not to seem in any respect more absurd that there is to be an adventitious resurrection of the ungodly which will drag them against their will before the tribunal of Christ, whom they now refuse to receive as their master and teacher. To be consumed by death would be a light punishment were they not, in order to the punishment of their rebellion, to be assisted before the judge, whom they have provoked to a vengeance without measure and without end. But although we are to hold, as already observed, and as is contained in the celebrated confession of Paul to Felix, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. Acts 24, verse 15. Yet Scripture more frequently sets forth the resurrection as intended, along with celestial glory for the children of God only, because, properly speaking, Christ comes not for the destruction, but for the salvation of the world, and therefore in the creed the life of blessedness only is mentioned. 10. But since the prophecy that death shall be swallowed up in victory, Hosea 13, verse 14, will then only be completed, let us always remember that the end of the resurrection is eternal happiness, of whose excellence scarcely the minute part can be described by all that human tongues can say. For though we are truly told that the kingdom of God will be full of light and gladness and felicity and glory, yet the things meant by these words remain most remote from sense, and as it were involved in enigma, until the day arrive on which he will manifest his glory to us face to face. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. Now, says John, are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3, verse 2. Hence, as the prophets were unable to give a verbal description of that spiritual blessedness, they usually delineated it by corporeal objects. On the other hand, because the fervor of desire must be kindled in us by some taste of its sweetness, let us specially dwell upon this thought. If God contains in himself, as an inexhaustible fountain, all fullness of blessing, those who aspire to the supreme good and perfect happiness must not long for anything beyond him. This we are taught in several passages. Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield, and thy exceeding great reward. Genesis 15, verse 1. With this accords David's sentiment, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Psalms 16, verses 5 and 6. Again, I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Psalms 17, verse 15. Peter declares that the purpose for which believers are called is that they may be partakers of the divine nature. Second Peter 1, verse 4. How so? because he shall come to be glorified in his saints, and to be admired in all them that believe. Second Thessalonians 1, verse 10. 
if our lord will share his glory power and righteousness with the elect nay will give himself to be enjoyed by them and what is better still will in a manner become one with them let us remember that every kind of happiness is herein included but when we have made great progress in thus meditating let us understand that if the conceptions of our minds be contrasted with the sublimity of the mystery we are still halting at the very entrance the more necessary it is for us to cultivate sobriety in this matter lest unmindful of our feeble capacity we presume to take too lofty a flight and be overwhelmed by the brightness of the celestial glory we feel how much we are stimulated by an excessive desire of knowing more than is given us to know and hence frivolous and noxious questions are ever and anon springing forth by frivolous i mean questions from which no advantage can be extracted but there is a second class which is worse than frivolous because those who indulge in them involve themselves in hurtful speculations hence i call them noxious the doctrine of scripture on the subject ought not to be made the ground of any controversy and it is that as god in the varied distribution of gifts to his saints in this world gives them unequal degrees of light so when he shall crown his gifts their degrees of glory in heaven will also be unequal when paul says ye are our glory and our joy first thessalonians two verse twenty his words do not apply indiscriminately to all nor do those of our saviour to his apostles ye also shall sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of israel matthew nineteen verse twenty eight but paul who knew that as god enriches the saints with spiritual gifts in this world he will in like manner adorn them with glory in heaven hesitates not to say that a special crown is laid up for him in proportion to his labors our saviour also to commend the dignity of the office which he had conferred on the apostles reminds them that the fruit of it is laid up in heaven this too daniel says they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars for ever and ever daniel twelve verse three any one who attentively considers the scriptures will see not only that they promise eternal life to believers but a special reward to each hence the expression of paul the lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the lord in that day second timothy one verse eighteen four verse fourteen this is confirmed by our saviour's promise that they shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life matthew nineteen verse twenty nine in short as christ by the manifold variety of his gifts begins the glory of his body in this world and gradually increases it so he will complete it in heaven eleven while all the godly with one consent will admit this because it is sufficiently attested by the word of god they will on the other hand avoid perplexing questions which they feel to be a hindrance in their way and thus keep within the prescribed limits in regard to myself i not only individually refrain from a superfluous investigation of useless matters 
but also think myself bound to take care that I do not encourage the levity of others by answering them. Men puffed up with vain science are often inquiring how great the difference will be between prophets and apostles, and again between apostles and martyrs, by how many degrees virgins will surpass those who are married. In short, they leave not a corner of heaven untouched by their speculations. Next, it occurs to them to inquire to what end the world is to be repaired, since the children of God will not be in want of any part of this great and incomparable abundance, but will be like the angels, whose abstinence from food is a symbol of eternal blessedness. I answer that independent of use, there will be so much pleasantness in the very sight, so much delight in the very knowledge, that this happiness will far surpass all the means of enjoyment which are now afforded. Let us suppose ourselves placed in the richest quarter of the globe, where no kind of pleasure is wanting. Who is there that is not ever and anon hindered and excluded by disease from enjoying the gifts of God? Who does not oftentimes interrupt the course of enjoyment by intemperance? Hence it follows that fruition, pure and free from all defect, though it be of no use to a corruptible life, is the summit of happiness. Others go further, and ask whether dross and other impurities in metals will have no existence at the restitution, and are inconsistent with it. Though I should go so far as concede this to them, yet I expect with Paul a reparation of those defects which first began with sin, and on account of which the whole creation groaneth and travaileth with pain. Romans 8, verse 22. Others go a step further and ask, what better condition can await the human race, since the blessing of offspring shall then have an end? The solution of this difficulty also is easy. When Scripture so highly extols the blessing of offspring, it refers to the progress by which God is constantly urging nature forward to its goal. In perfection itself, we know that the case is different. But as such, alluring speculations instantly captivate the unwary, who are afterwards led farther into the labyrinth, until at length, every one becoming pleased with his own views, there is no limit to disputation. The best and shortest course for us will be to rest contented with seeing through a glass darkly, until we shall see face to face. Few out of the vast multitude of mankind feel concerned how they are to get to heaven. All would fain know before the time what is done in heaven. Almost all, while slow and sluggish in entering upon the contest, are already depicting to themselves imaginary triumphs. 12. Moreover, as language cannot describe the severity of the divine vengeance on the reprobate, their pains and torments are figured to us by corporeal things, such as darkness, wailing, and gnashing of teeth, inextinguishable fire, the ever-gnawing worm. Matthew 8, verse 12, 22, verse 13, Mark 9, verse 43, Isaiah 66, verse 24. It is certain that by such modes of expression the Holy Spirit designed to impress all our senses with dread, as when it is said, Tophet is ordained of old, yea, for the king it is prepared, he has made it deep and large, 
the pile thereof is fire and much wood the breath of the lord like a stream of brimstone does kindle it isaiah thirty verse thirty three as we thus require to be assisted to conceive the miserable doom of the reprobate so the consideration on which we ought chiefly to dwell is the fearful consequence of being estranged from all fellowship with god and not only so but a feeling that his majesty is adverse to us while we cannot possibly escape from it for first his indignation is like a raging fire by whose touch all things are devoured and annihilated next all the creatures are the instruments of his judgment so that those to whom the lord will thus publicly manifest his anger will feel that heaven and earth and sea all beings animate and inanimate are as it were inflamed with dire indignation against them and armed for their destruction wherefore the apostle made no trivial declaration when he said that unbelievers shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the lord and from the glory of his power second thessalonians one verse nine and whenever the prophets strike terror by means of corporeal figures although in respect of our dull understanding there is no extravagance in their language yet they give preludes of the future judgment in the sun and the moon and the whole fabric of the world hence unhappy consciences find no rest but are vexed and driven out by a dire whirlwind feeling as if torn by an angry god pierced through with deadly darts terrified by his thunderbolts and crushed by the weight of his hand so that it were easier to plunge into abysses and whirlpools than endure these terrors for a moment how fearful then must it be to be thus beset throughout eternity on this subject there is a memorable passage in the ninetieth psalm although god by a mere look scatters all mortals and brings them to naught yet as his worshippers are more timid in this world he urges them the more that he may stimulate them while burdened with the cross to press onward unto he himself shall be all in all end of section forty seven end of institutes of the christian religion book three by john calvin translated by henry beveridge recording by guero